Defendants within the criminal justice system are separated into two separate yet unequal categories, Caucasians and people that have financial resources to afford adequate representation and disadvantaged people of color who don't. These are their stories. Now I've been arrested. I've been taken to jail. I've been accused of a crime I don't know anything about. I've watched the system manipulate the truth. I've been taken to trial. I've been convicted. I've been sentenced to death. And now I'm on death row. And I'm finna experience my first execution around me. Totally blew my mind. I, I remember guys were talking over the run and they was talking to the guy named Joe Cannon. Joe Cannon had an execution date. I had just gotten there maybe about two, three days. And I hear everybody over there talking to Joe Cannon, asking him if he need anything. But at this time, they were able to smoke cigarettes on death row. So everybody was trying to look out for Joe Cannon, send him cigarettes and whatever he needed. And eventually they came and they moved him off of the wing that we was on, J23, and they took him to death watch cell because the next day, well, the next night he was gonna be executed. See, Texas had a thing that where when they would execute you, it would be at midnight. Everyone would be asleep. It would be 12 midnight when they were executing you originally. And then because there was so much of an outcry about them executing and murdering people in the middle of the night, they decided to move it up to 6 p.m. in the afternoon, well, in the evening. So now at 6 p.m. in the evening is when the executions take place. But let's, let's rewind back to my first execution with Joe Cannon. So, I mean, I'm, I have to be honest. It was like, it's crazy to say this, but it was sort of exciting that here I am on Texas death row and they're finna execute somebody. I didn't know anything about the death penalty or executions, but now I'm in the middle of this and it was like eerily exciting to see what's gonna happen, right? I, was, I became a fan to see how this is gonna play out. And I never forget the next day, right? When the officers were about to serve us our meal I heard guys over the run telling people, hey man, you know, don't take your tray, right? Don't eat nothing from the state today. Uh, you know, this is in remembrance of Joe Cannon. If they execute him tonight, right? We're gonna stay in prayer all day. And it just blew my mind how all of these guys were coming together to show support for the guy that was getting executed, right? No one would, no one would talk that day no one would eat their food that day. They wouldn't take no trades from the officers. It was in solidarity. Uh, it was a solidarity protest against someone's execution, right? So it just blew my mind. But that wasn't the only thing I experienced. I stayed down there on death row over 12 years. And man, when I tell you, I, I witnessed some, oh man, some worst of the worst inhumanity around the death penalty, death sentences and executions. For example, I remember this one guy named, I'm just gonna call him Arnold, right? Arnold was this, this, this guy who had came with much attitude, right? A lot of people was afraid of him. He was about 6'4", about 280 pounds, and he was schizophrenic and a sociopath, okay? And uh, he would tell me stories about how he got the death row from California. 
He apparently had came to Texas first and committed a murder, went back out to California, ended up robbing and committing the murder, got sentenced to death in California. But because California had a lot of gangs on death row and he was into it with a lot of gangs, he ended up killing one of them and telling it on himself what he did in Texas so that they could extradite him back to Texas so that he didn't get killed in prison in California. Now that's crazy, right? because he, got, he came to Texas where they, they do kill. And it's not an inmate, it's the state, they do kill. So anyway, Arnold got down to Texas and he had this reputation of just really being a sociopath and people had to always watch out for him. I remember guards would, would gas him and bring him out of his cell totally naked to take him in the shower because he's threatened somebody's life. But anyway, this other guy named Maurice and Arnold, they didn't really get along, right? It's a little bad blood for whatever reason. But Maurice had an execution date. And everybody thought Maurice was gonna get executed that night around midnight. Uh, the officers came and picked Maurice up around 12 noon and took him over to the walls. Cause that, like I said, at midnight they were gonna execute him. But at the last minute, Maurice gets a stay of execution. He's excited. Everybody hear about it on the radio at night. So you hear people shouting over the run, Maurice gotta stay, Maurice gotta stay. And guys that, that cuff liked the Maurice, you know, they're all clapping and, you know, it was exciting. It was like, a, it was like somebody won the football game in overtime, you know, and everybody was happy. So they finally brought Maurice back. He was so excited. He was talking all over the run and everything. And meanwhile, Arnold was sitting down here listening. So Arnold makes a gesture to, uh, Maurice, that they come out to wreck together the next day and squash whatever beef they had. As a matter of fact, it was going to be commissary day, and that's why you're allowed to purchase items out of the store that they have uh, on the uh, prison unit. And so Arnold was going to buy ice cream, and him and Maurice was going to go on the wreck yard, and they would talk, right? That's what it was supposed to be, and kind of squash the beef. Well, what we didn't know is that Arnold is who Arnold is, a sociopath. So they, the next morning they allowed them to go out onto the flex yard, as they call it, to recreate together, because we had group rec, right? Even though we was in solitary confinement, that row still had group rec, right? Arnold and Maurice was in the same group. We get out, I'm still in my cell, but they get out that morning and Arnold and Maurice are walking on the wreck yard talking. Arnold did buy the ice cream. It didn't take 10, 15 minutes after they were talking that Arnold pulled a screw out of the wall, outside wall, a, a big old screw out of the wall and drove it in Maurice's head from one side to the other and killed him just like that. That's death row. And everybody was shocked. The officers were so shocked and scared, they wouldn't even go out there. They were all looking out the window. And Arnold was taking Maurice's lifeless body and picking it up and holding it up in front of the window. And he was telling this other guy, guy that he was friends with, a guy that also had something against Maurice. And he was calling him Young Lion. And he telling, Young Lion, this is for you, Young Lion. And he'd throw the body back down and he smashed the body again. And he'll pick it back up and it's young line. This is for you, young line. He throw the body back down. He smashed the body again. This is a lifeless body. And the officers were too afraid to go out there and stop it. 
So finally, when it became about 30 officers, they all went out there and gassed Arnold and, and uh, subdued him, handcuffed him, and took him straight into a solitary confinement. But Maurice had already died. And you just think, this man fought all those years, I think it was a total of about 12 years, avoided several executions, just got a stay of execution the night before, and the next morning, another inmate killed him. That's death row. I'm, I'll tell you another story though. Here's a story about a guy named Kia Johnson. Kia Johnson was from San Antonio, Texas, about 35 years old, 6'2", 6'3", light-skinned guy. And he had a bad drug habit when he was on the streets, which caused him to rob a convenience store. And, and off, a, uh, a clerk ended up getting killed, right, tussling over the gun. Well, Kia got sentenced to death. And he and I become good friends. And uh, I learned his story quite a lot. I learned about his family. And I learned how he was raised, you know. And so there was a lot of mitigating factors to why, how his life ended up being what it was. But i never forget the day that they was going to execute Kia. See, on, on, on the days that they're going to execute you, what they would do is they would allow you to give them a list of other inmates you'd like to say goodbye to. And they would, they would go get that inmate, and one by one they would bring them down there and to stand them in front of your cell, and you can say your goodbyes. But this particular day, Kia was visiting his, with his family, and they allowed you to visit up to noon before they took you over to the walls unit and executed you. So knowing that Kia was gonna be out there visiting his family, I decided to ask my pen pal to come visit me the same day so that we can sit beside Kia out there and we can just say our, say our goodbyes because they had gotten to know Kia themselves. I'll never forget, I was sitting out there, Kia was sitting next to me, and I, the first time I seen his mother and his brother, and then my pen pals were sitting in front of me, and we were just all conversing, you know, trying not to think about the elephant that was in the room. And then at noon, all of a sudden you're seeing about 10 officers come with chains and shackles, and they called Kia's name and told him that his visit was up, right? And had him stand up and had him bag up to the, to the mesh wire of the cage that he was sitting in talking with his family. Stick his hands through the uh, panhole, as they call it, which is in the middle of the uh, door. They did that, and the thing is, they did that in front of his mother and his brother, right? They're, finna they're chaining him up to take him off and murder him, and they're doing it in front of his mother and his brother. Right. And it just broke my heart to see this woman. She couldn't touch her son. She couldn't say goodbye to her son in any kind of way other than just to say I love you, hang up the phone. And then they ushered her out of the room. By this time, Kill looks at me because I'm sitting next to him in my cage. And the only thing I could say to him positively was say, hey man, just go over there and get you something to eat and come on back, man. But he knew that wasn't going to be the case. He knew that he was going to get executed. And he looked at me, he said, yeah, man, that's what I'm going to do. And that was the last time I had seen Kia Johnson, a healthy 35-year-old man who had just visited with his mother and his brother, just told them that they loved each other, being taken off and being executed like an animal. And, the only time, and I'm sitting there, and this is just playing through my mind. Meanwhile, I hear two officers down the hallway. 
and I listen, I pick up on the conversation they were having. And they were talking about fishing, how the fish were gonna be biting this evening. And they couldn't wait to get off to go home because they was gonna go fishing. And I was thinking to myself, here it is, the state of Texas just finna go and execute this human being. And the officers are so detached from the reality that's going on around them that the only thing they could think about was going fishing. I just, it just blew my mind, right? I was there when it was about 400 executions taking place. Most of them guys I knew. And as I said, they used to allow us to go down and say our goodbyes if you were put on the list. And many people would put me on the list. And I would go down there and I would try to give them an encouraging word. I would stand in front of them and tell them, hey man, keep your head up, keep your dignity about yourself. You're still a human being. And I remember this one in particular, Charles Bard. i never forget, he was out of Dallas. And we used to call him Wicked, right? Just because he was just really funny guy, right? And he had put me on the list of people he wanted to say goodbye to. Now, Wicked had already gotten a stay of execution before. As a matter of fact, his case was overturned by the courts. And Wicked was looking forward to going home because he had a legitimate claim of actual innocence. But what the courts did, they reversed his case for two years. And while he was waiting to come back to uh, uh, Dallas to go for another trial, they reversed that ruling, took back his, his they, they took back the ruling that said that he deserved another trial and they gave him an execution date. This was after two years. This man claimed his innocence. This man is happy. He feel like he's finna go home. The truth has been told and they took it back from him. The state of Texas took that back from him. And now that, that on this particular day, they're finna execute him. And I'm going down here to tell him, keep his head up, keep his dignity. And, and nothing can ever describe the sounds of a grown man crying because he know the state is finna murder him for something he didn't do. I listen to Wicked. I sit there and watch this man cry and tell me, man, I didn't do this. I didn't do this. And there was nothing I could say because here I am, I didn't do this. I knew how he felt. And yet at some point they're gonna try to murder me. And I said, Wicked, man, just keep your head up, man. Keep praying, man. Keep fighting, man. And he started crying to me. Man, I didn't do this, man. I didn't do this. They finna kill me for something I didn't do. Why they just gonna kill me for something I didn't do? A couple of hours later, the state of Texas executed an innocent man. His name was Charles Bart. And I will never forget that. He wasn't the only one that they executed, that I truly believe that was innocent. Gary Graham, who we call Shaka Sankofa, Odell Barnes, Ty Willingham, the list goes on and on and on. Innocent men on death row waiting to be executed by the state that put them there. I witnessed this and it made me realize that I just can't sit here and not do nothing that I can't let the world, I can't just sit and not let the world know what I'm witnessing. This is total inhumanity. 
I don't care how you feel about the death penalty, whether you believe in it or not. But this is what I will say. Do not believe in a death penalty for other people's children when you can't believe in it for your own. What's good for the goose is going to have to be good for the gander because they're not going to say, because you don't believe in a death penalty, we're not going to execute your son. We're just going to execute those who don't believe. That's not how it work. That's just not how it work. I never knew anything about the death penalty until it knocked on my door. And when I went down there, and witnessed the inhumanity, killing these kids that was mentally ill, that was innocent, that should have deserved a lesser included offense, but didn't have any money to afford a good attorney. And these kids were going down there when they were 17 and 18 years old. And now I'm meeting them and they're 39 and they're 46 and they've been down there 25 years and 30 years. And they're still trying to hold it together. And they're witnessing all of these executions around them men that they have grown up with, that when they came down there, they were 17 and the other guy was 21 and now they're in their forties. I watched this, I watched how this just really, really took the soul of men out of their bodies. Men was walking around dead. All they needed to do was lay down because the state had taken everything from them. And that's what's going on down there today. 400 executions I witnessed while I was there. Most of them I knew. Most of them I knew, man. And I would say to myself, how can this be? How can we justify killing a, a healthy, strong human being who's loved by many because of something we think they might have done? We don't have it in us to forgive. We don't have it in us to try to use this to help other people by taking these stories and using them to make a difference to better our system. These are things that we really need to think about when we're talking about the death penalty. It's not bad for you to believe in the death penalty because if someone has done something to my son, to my mother, I don't want someone telling me how I should feel about that. I should have every right to feel how I choose to feel. And if I want someone to get the death penalty because they murdered my child, I have every right to feel that way. But let me just say this, because of those emotions that I carry behind what happened to me personally, should we put that up on the public? Is that how we should govern based on my emotional response to what happened to my mother, my son? Is that fair for the rest of society? Because that's what's happening now. We are reacting emotionally to a tragic situation. And what we're doing is we create more tragic by taking more life. And then for somehow we've been able to spin it and call it justice. It's another murder. And it's the murder by at the hands of the state that you pay taxes in, that you look for to serve and protect you, that you look for to make sure that your child can go to school and come home in one piece. And they're turning around and they're snatching him up and they're putting him in jail and they're talking about executing him. 
because we have the death penalty. Let me tell you this. I watched the death penalty rip my family apart. My kids were nine, eight, and 11 when this happened to me. I've been back home almost nine years and we still don't have the relationship that I wish we had, we could have had. They took so much from me. The death penalty takes so much from people's families. It's not just about the person sitting in the cheap seat. He has a mother, a father, children, siblings, community. All of them have been affected by the judgment call of the state when they decided to send this, this loved one to death. And not only that, but they have every intention of murdering him, whether he's innocent or guilty, it doesn't matter no more. Because the death penalty has called his name and they're gonna schedule an execution date. Unless someone intervenes, unless someone has the courage to change this system, unless someone acknowledge that it is a failed system, that 160 men across our country has walked off from the death penalty, when it was once sentenced to die for something they didn't do? Unless we can wrap our minds around that and figure out how we can arise above as a community, the crime and the criminal itself, then we're no better than the person that we're trying to lay down and murder. Because we're doing the same thing that we accused him of doing. But somehow, we have figured out how to justify when there's no justification for murder, for killing anyone. We have now life without parole, right? There's no such thing as life without parole. That's another death sentence, okay? So let's not play with the words. Life without parole is also the death penalty because you're there until you die of your natural causes versus dying with someone putting poison in your veins. But the results are the same. Both of them results in death. So if we know that this life without parole is really a death sentence and it's cheaper, and if we get it wrong, we have a chance to get it, get it right, why not choose that path rather than the one that we just pump poison in someone's veins, and then if we're wrong, we can't reverse it. It's because we've executed several innocent men, and it's coming to light today, and we can never reverse that, never. But those guys that we have given life without parole, any of those that are innocent, we can reverse that because they're still alive. They'll never come home again. They'll die of natural causes, but if they're actually innocent, we have a chance to get it right. And that's what we really want from our system, is to get it right. No man, woman or child, should have to experience being kidnapped and taken and put in prison by the very state, same state they pay their taxes in, they grew up in. They praise, they worship, they're proud of. And then all of a sudden, like a nightmare, like a thief in the night.
You're robbed of your liberty, your freedom, your justice, and you're sitting on death row. And you don't understand, how did I get here? How did I get here? So, I tell you all these things because in this segment, I really want you to focus on the death penalty and what it really means to you. What does it really mean to us as a society, as a person, as a human being? What does the death penalty really mean to us? And at the end of the day, is it really bringing us justice? That's a question I really want you guys to answer because next time we're gonna pick up on when I am now finally walking off of death row and I have to go back to the jail after spending 12 and a half to almost 16 years now in prison. Now my case has been overturned and we're gonna go back to jail. So we're gonna talk about when my case was overturned, right? After all that I've witnessed on, on death row, now my case is being overturned and I have to go back to jail and get back into the legal system again, where I witnessed so much more injustice that we just definitely have to talk about that next week. So stay tuned, this story is not over. Together, we're gonna make change. You've been listening to the Smart Justice Reform Podcast with Anthony Graves. For more information about how you can get involved or support the program, visit anthonybelieves.org. And be sure to subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, or whatever streaming media platform you use. I'm Anthony Graves, and I crisscross this globe sharing my story about my injustice. People often come up to me and ask me, what is it that they can do to help? And I tell them there are three things that you can do. Number one, contact your local and state rep. Show up for jury duty when you're summoned. And most importantly, vote. <laughs>